And she processes this information just as it was at face value. But her heart at that moment, her mind at that moment, would not perceive that it's actually a resurrected Christ. And I'm not faulting Mary because you think about it. Would you not be somewhat skeptic as well? Had you ever seen someone raised from the dead? If I came to you and said, guess what? You know, I died yesterday, but I'm here and I'm back. You'd probably say, yeah, yeah, maybe you need to step down for a while and get some, some, some help. You know, you would, you would immediately dismiss that. So I can understand how Mary and I can understand how these disciples and the others would go to this tomb. And that's their, that's their knee-jerk response. Because that's what they saw. They weren't thinking about what they were taught. They were not thinking and walking in faith. They were not thinking of what Jesus had taught them, what he had told them to believe. If they had kind of gone there preemptively with this in mind, hey, this is the third day. This is what he said. We're looking for this. We're watching for this. Then they arrive at a tomb that's empty rather than running away in despair. Mary ran so fast she didn't even have time to encounter the angels. She didn't encounter the angel until she came back, and she's weeping outside the tomb. And then the angel speaks, and she's like, oh, woe is me. And she turns to who she thinks to be the gardener, but it's actually her teacher, Christ. But she ran. Didn't even give herself time to process and say, what's going on? And I think there's a lesson here that we need to learn, and it's to walk by faith and not by sight. Because how often do we act as though the teachings of Jesus have made no impression on our faith or our lives? How often do we act like that? We know the teachings of Jesus. Maybe you don't know every verse that you can quote, or maybe you can't bring those up, but the concepts and the principles of Jesus being our burden bearer, and the concepts and the principles of Jesus has overcome the world, and the concepts and the principles of your value and worth in Jesus, you know those. Maybe you can't say, ah, this is in Matthew, or this is in John, or this is in Mark, but you know those values. But do those values and those teachings, do they cause you to have right and proper sight or are you taking in information not based on faith and therefore that's causing your response which is not a faith based response so some of these promises that Jesus have made us just to give you some application and illustrations here Jesus did promise that he said in Matthew 11:28 through 30 he said come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest he says to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble and hard, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is, right? A yoke usually has two holes in it and is, is, goes over the neck, mounting on the shoulders of two oxen. And the oxen would carry this plowing device behind them so that they could till up the soil. And these oxen are two massive, massive animals who are very strong, and they would pull through this. And it's meant to be very, very, very difficult. So the yoke is a difficult thing. I think of Christian who's trying to get out of the city of destruction in the Pilgrim's Progress and get to that celestial city. And he's got this burden that he's carrying. He's like, I'm trying to get there. But he enters the slough of despond and he meets worldly wise men and he meets all these other people. And he's trying to get there. He's, he's pilgriming through here and it's very, very difficult. And he's like, I've got to get rid of this burden. And then he finds himself at the cross. And when he's at the cross, that's where he realizes that there is actually a burden bearer. And he takes the yoke of Jesus. It doesn't make it super easy, but it does mean that Jesus' yoke is light. And Jesus becomes our burden bearer. And the question for us is, are we weighed down by what it is 
to live in the 21st century? Are we weighed down by what it is to live in 2021? Are we overcome or undone by all the nonsense that we see around us, all the vitriol, all the hatred that's spewed against the body of Christ? For you, pick whatever reason. I mean, it's enough to shut yourself up in a room and just cry for a bit, <laughs> you know? You know, I mean, the alternative is, is go down swinging. I mean, you know, it's like, wh- what do we do? It's, it's, it's a tough thing. And I'm burdened by these things. I'm burdened by so many things. But for me to have a right approach to this truth is to judge what I see and what I know by a truth that's already been taught to me in Christ. It's not what Mary did in this moment, though. Look, Jesus promises us that he's overcome the world. He already said that in John 16, 33. We've already looked at that. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Hey, take on my yoke. It'll be easier for you. By the way, I've done the work. I've worn the yoke and I've plowed through it and I've overcome the world. It has been overcome. The world does not win. The gates of Hades do not prevail. So stand easy or rest easy and take my yoke upon you for i've overcome the world but do you live and act as though the world has overcome you do you live and move and have your being as though the world has a leg up on christ and his church if we live that way is to reject the truth that jesus has in fact overcome the world that the victory has already been secured but we have to live in that reality as opposed to knee-jerk responses to just some of the things that we see. Jesus promises that in him we have infinite value. Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. How many people do you come across that claim to be Christians that struggle with their own worth and value? Their self-esteem issues because they have sins that haunt them. They're in Christ, they've been forgiven, but their sins haunt them. And rather than having a proper, a proper and sobering perspective when it comes to our past sins, they are enslaved to those sins. And that's the yoke and the burden that they carry when Jesus says, give me that and take my yoke. As a believer, do you live with self-esteem issues? Do you cling to the judgments And the affirmations of men to determine your joy. Stop looking at your failures. Embrace the value you have in Jesus. Now to be clear, our value is in Jesus. Alone. In the gospel. It's not that he saw us as valuable and therefore bestowed upon us grace. No, no. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel is that you are wretched and dark and, 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 and broken and hostile and bent against, against God with an inability for God, 1 Corinthians. And yet, he lays his affections upon you and gives you identity in the gospel. Sometimes what we see is not what is true. We know what we know should determine what we see. Mary struggled in her belief. This is why she didn't immediately rejoice at seeing the empty tomb. And we're all like Mary. We're all like the disciples. I mean, don't get me wrong. We all have these struggles. But let's learn from those failures. Let's learn from seeing these people. Let's learn from Peter who jumps out of the boat and sinks. 
You know, uh, let's, let's learn from these failures. Grace often finds us in our darkest moments of unbelief. That's what happened for Mary. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, and this is for next week for Austin to deal with, but um, Mary encounters Christ just a few verses later, just a little while later in the story when she comes back, undone at her wit's end because they've stolen the body. Christ reveals himself to her. In a dark moment of unbelief, when her unbelief had overcome her, Jesus says, I'm not your gardener, I'm your Lord. And it changes everything. So Mary Magdalene came to that tomb, it was dark, and then they saw that the stone was rolled away. I think this is interesting. I think what's happened here, because let me just say this, I, I, uh, this is how my brain works, and this is some of that secondary teaching. The stone was rolled away, and that's key, that's paramount. But was it necessary for the stone to be removed in order for Jesus to exit the cave? No. You'll find just a few verses later where the disciples are all gathered together, licking their wounds, oh, woe is me, and the door's locked, and then Jesus appears. I, may, maybe he unlocked it. Maybe he knocked and said, hey, guys, can I, can I please come in, or I'll blow your house down? I don't know what he said, but it seems to be that he just kind of walked in there. I'm cool with that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, he just rose from the dead. If that can happen, I think he can just evaporate himself right through a wall. All right? So if he can walk through that, he can walk through a stone. So it begs the question, was it a bit superfluous or unnecessary to roll that stone? Wouldn't it have been cool if Jesus could have just been like, I'm out. I'm out of the cave. Here I am. But the stone's still there, and everybody's freaking out. That would have been pretty funny to watch, these guards thinking, but we did. We kept it sealed. It was good. But he's here. What do we do? You know, we're, they're having to come up with new creative ways to keep people in there because these dead folks just keep getting up and leaving. I think this, I don't think it's a far stretch. Now, the Scripture doesn't say. So that's why I call it a secondary teaching. And this is, this is just what I think is interesting. And what I would offer to you as my opinion, okay, I'm making that very clear. It wouldn't be strange if we found out that this is fact. That this was an extra gracious visual measure that would, by the way, be recorded in history for all mankind to be able to buy this book that just happens to be the number one seller in the world and it has right in there, the stone was rolled away. I think it validates the resurrection. Not that it's needed, but that God in His grace said, I'm going to solidify this moment in time. I'm going to see to it that it's recorded in history so that my people for years and years and years to come can open this book and see that it's recorded as historical fact. People don't argue against a removed stone. They don't. Nobody's trying to say it wasn't really gone. That's history. And I think it has a tremendous meaning. Look, the tomb of Lazarus was removed by human hands. I think it's interesting that the tomb of Jesus was removed by the hands of an angel. Probably revealing that God has now intervened. That God's involved in this. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, he passed through a locked door. Jesus didn't need the stone. I told you that. This was a visual validation of the resurrection. So John and Peter now in the store, in the story, they run to the tomb. 
So John and Peter are on their way. John beats him there, doesn't go in. Peter finally gets there, and he immediately goes in, wants to see what's going on. He's investigating the empty space. He's looking around. He sees the garments. He sees, you know, the, the clothes that are lying there, the wrappings that are just there, and they're trying to make sense. Why are these things there? What is going on? I mean, you know, we have a naked man on the loose. I don't know. This, this, is, this, is, this is weird. So they're trying to process this information. And again, I've said it a moment ago. I want to be clear that be careful with your conjecture because there are a lot of people who want to make much of, these, of this shroud, of these wrappings that are there. And some of it becomes a bit of a stretch. I won't read all those things to you, but just, just, just know this. One theologian said, the facts which are actually related are wonderful enough without exegetical embellishment. So just let the facts of what you see in the text, let that suffice. Rather than creating or conjuring up all these things in your brain that say, well, maybe it's this. I get it. I just did that. I just shared my opinion. Okay, I just shared with you these these things, but I, I would I would encourage tremendous caution when you're working through these things. So it comes to the question, why did John outrun Peter? Let me submit to you this again. I'm going to I'm going to step away, you know, from what the text is actually saying and just say, could it be? Could it be something to think about? Could it be this? John had tremendous affections for Jesus. It was the disciple whom Jesus loved who was recorded as lying his head in the bosom of Christ when they were at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. There was a tremendous relationship, platonic as some would want to say otherwise. And so you have this disciple whom Jesus loved. They have tremendous affections for one another. He cannot go fast enough to see what's going on. He gets there. He's looking. Maybe just out of respect for the dead, he won't go in. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But he says, Maybe it's his great love. And by contrast, Peter's lagging behind a little bit. Could it be that John's intimate connection with Jesus gave him greater cause for haste, whereas Peter's shame might have given him reason for lag? There's no question that Peter was ashamed of himself. That's not a textual gymnastic attempt. There's no question that there was a disciple whom Jesus loved. It could be that Peter was just a little hesitant to get there because if he got there, there was one of two realities that he had to face. One, a risen Christ, and then he had to square up to the reality that I denied you three times and watched you die a horrific death and said nothing. Or or he comes up to a tomb that is empty and worse, a Savior who is not risen, and therefore not a Savior at all. He's got to square up to that reality. That everything they've learned, everything they've put themselves into for three years was all for nothing. I think that would give me cause for fear, trepidation, lag. <laughs> I don't want to face the music just yet, you know. I was told when I was little to go get my own switch or to go get the paddle or to go get whatever the instrument of discipline was in my home and go to my room. And I'm taking my sweet time when I do that because I want to postpone the inevitable. I think that Jesus' encounter with Peter, this is, this is getting hit. I think this is great. I just want to say this because it, it gives me so much joy. For whatever reason, maybe, maybe shame, Peter 
doesn't run as quickly to the tomb because of what he knows is the inevitable. But I think it's so fantastic. I think it's so fantastic. If I could just jump ahead for just a moment and show that Jesus' encounter with Peter in John 21 is a clear picture of the gospel's power in forgiving and forgiveness. Peter denied Christ, and then you have this reinstatement of Peter on the shore around a charcoal fire. Around a fire that is charcoal. The last charcoal fire that's recorded for him to be around was the one he hid by when he denied Jesus. So now he's back, and he's being forgiven. He's being reinstated. He's being commissioned and commanded by Jesus. And I love this part. Peter's so slow to get there. He's so slow to get there. He's the last one to get there. But guess what happens when Jesus arrives back on the scene, when the disciples go back to fishing? He says, hey, it's me, the Messiah, because they get it, because he's like, hey, throw your net on the other side. And Peter says, it's Jesus. He jumps out of the boat and starts swimming. Forget paddling to the shore. Forget hoisting the sail or whatever and getting over there. If I'm using my boating terms wrong, you have to help me later there, Bill. But, uh, but he jumps out and he goes. He's, I'm not going to be the last one this time. I'll be there. I'll be there with Jesus. So they finally get there, and then they look through the tomb. They're investigating things. They see these linen cloths. Again, it's important that we do not read too much into this text. Let's not insist on discovering things that aren't there. The main point of describing the placement, the main point of the linen cloths was to show that they were without a body. The point of the linen cloths being there ultimately is to show that Jesus had come out of them because he was now alive. And those claws, those garments belong to dead men, not to the living. But you have these two disciples that show up. And they saw these things. Listen, I told you it was said four times, but starting in verse 5, and stooping down, John looked in. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And then Simon Peter came, and following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, oh, I got those out of order. So Peter saw, and then John saw, and then he believed. The word saw, there is two different forms of that verb, and this is important for you. Peter goes in there, and he saw as in he observed he just observed what, would happen, what had happened. He just took inventory of the things that were taking place in there. But what Peter didn't do is, is, is believe at that moment. He just observed. That's what he did. It's like someone points out a snake in the road. We're driving together or we're whatever in the woods, and hey, there's a snake right there. Oh, there is a snake right there. I've observed it. I see it. Okay, I believe it, but the idea is I'm just observing. I'm just acknowledging that it's, that it's there. You know, the guys are downtown last night preaching the gospel in Greenville. There are people observing, most of them probably not believing. They see and they hear the message. They're observing it. They're not believing it. So there's a different way one sees and then another way that someone else sees. The verb that is used for John seeing connotes something different. It connotes a perception with understanding. So one just saw it and acknowledges that it was a thing. The other acknowledged it, believed it. And that's an important distinction. One of the guys that I work with, his name is Kevin Moore, fantastic carpenter. Doesn't make me dig as many holes. And we have this understanding that (laughs) 
and this, it's, it's my ignorance, we have this understanding that when he's explaining a job to me, he'll follow it up by saying, do you see what I'm saying? And he knows if I don't respond, I see, he's like, let's, let's go through this again, all right? You know, so, so, you know, you cut it straight, you know, so he's helping me, right? Like, got it, you know, so, so uh, but that's how that works. So he's wanting to know, do I see it? Have I just observed what he's said? Because that happens a lot, admittedly. I'm like, well, I just look real smart around a home. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, we're going to do that. It's technical. It's technical. It's technical. You don't want to know, homeowner. Let us deal with that because we're, <laughs> we're construction's elite. Uh, but then I don't know what I'm talking about. So if you want to hire me, hire Austin. John perceived and he understood the reality of the resurrection. At that moment, Peter did not. But the scripture tells us that because of that, up to that point, they had not really believed or understood. I think the Lord is often gracious to bring us, bring us in further in order that we might understand even after we've missed what should have been obvious. We look back on a type of Christ that foreshadowed the condemnation and vindication of Jesus. I mean, when you look at these, 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 these garments, here's some of the things that, that, are, that are implied here is that just like Joseph was sold into slavery, Joseph was wrongly accused, and Joseph was brought into a place of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Of disgrace. Joseph is then vindicated and elevated to a place of honor. Jesus in the same. Jesus was brought to a place of disgrace. He's thrown in a tomb. He's, he's numbered or labeled with men of shame. But then he's brought away from the, uh, from the grave. He's brought to life. And he's brought to a position of honor. Not that he never not that he was ever without honor. But the way they saw him was shame. And he died a man of shame's death. A guilty man's death even though he was not empty. Jesus' empty tomb and resurrection is an indication of his being brought away from disgrace or a position of disgrace and elevated to a place of honor. So finally I want to share with you just a few of what I would consider the primary teaching points. From the immediate context, again, the leaving behind of the garments of death. This serves as a picture and a promise that all who are in Christ are new. The old self is dead, and we will one day be rid of the garments of death. So yes, we are rescued, we are redeemed, there's still a sin nature. Where we don't have the condemnation of sin anymore, we still have the sin nature. We're still attached to that thing. But one day... No longer. And so just as those garments are left behind because they belong to a dead man and Christ is not a dead man, so metaphorically we will be rid of these garments of death, the sin nature, and be complete on that day. It also teaches us that God in his providence and grace ensures that we perceive and we understand. He makes a way for us to see, not just observe. It was gracious of the Lord to appear to Mary Magdalene in her moment of unbelief. It's gracious later for Jesus to apply, to, 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 uh, to uh, show himself to the twelve, to arrive uh, at the twelve, to reveal himself to the twelve. 
in their moment of unbelief. He took it a step further. They had the empty tomb. You understand this? They had the empty tomb. Should that not have been enough? I would say before that, his teaching should have been enough. The teaching were one thing, and then you have the resurrection, which they were still struggling to believe that. Then finally he shows up and he says, look, touch the scars and see for yourself. And then you have Thomas, oh Lord my God. That was his moment of belief in that because they had tremendous struggle. So I think that's your immediate context. Now the final thing is your broader biblical context. The primary teaching is this, that the resurrection marks the crescendo of redemptive history. It marks the pinnacle, the height of redemptive history. The ascension is, is, is critical, absolutely. The ascension is something, you know, the, the end of all things, the consummation of all things, that's, that's definitely a part of it. But the resurrection sealed the gospel, making it possible so that any of us can enjoy the great consummation of all things. I heard a guy sing the other day. I'd like to introduce him to, uh, to Zach Vaughn. His name is uh, uh, David Phelps. You may have never heard of him. But David Phelps is a fantastic singer. And, and there's a viral video, multiple, multiple, multiple viral videos with him singing Oh Holy Night. And it will blow your mind three times. It's incredible. Because he goes to a high C with control, with... Let me say this in in words you can understand. He sings way up there, okay? He sings way up there. And it's beautiful, and it's controlled, and he holds it out with strength, with poise. And all these vocal coaches are going crazy. Zach, have you heard it before? You heard him sing that? I thought maybe just because I was a bigger David Phelps fan than you. But it was amazing. It was amazing. So this song, Oh Holy Night, he gets to the end of it and he reaches this crescendo, this moment, this pinnacle, this climax, this, 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 this big arc in the song. And he just holds it out and people are going bananas because my goodness, what is this? And it sounds so good. And songs are like that, right? If you're a music lover, these crescendos, these, these pinnacle moments in these songs, you just love it. That's why we stand. We go crazy, you know, whether it's a guitar that reaches that ceiling in a solo. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a voice that reaches that ceiling, and it's just beautiful, and it's controlled. And we love it. It's like, that's it. That completed the song. I can go home now. I'm good. In the same way, the resurrection did that in redemptive history. All these moments are great. The A's that are sung, the B's that are sung, the low C's that are sung are beautiful. They're great. Jesus teaches on this. He tells you that if you're weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest. Jesus teaches you that you have value and worth because you are his. And these are great, great things that, 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 follow, that follow with every measure and with every bar of music. And they're so beautiful. And then the song starts to pick up and you're starting to get up to that arc and you see the, the death of Jesus. And though it's, though it's hard for us to reflect on that, it's also celebratory for us to reflect on that because we know what it means. We know what's coming. And then you have Jesus being buried. And so the orchestra is really working up to bring you to this big crescendo to really just blow your hair back with the beautiful music. And then all of a sudden it reaches the crescendo, which is the resurrection. Christ's resurrection. This is the culmination of all that we had hoped for. And in this 
symphony of Christian life. It's the pinnacle. Spending eternity with Jesus, of course, is the true pinnacle. But in this life, in earthly life, pre-eternity, the resurrection makes it all possible. So that's why we celebrate the resurrection. My challenge to you today, in keeping with our vision, is that to say to celebrate the resurrection daily is to celebrate and acknowledge the gospel daily. So our question for you is, what will you do to make sure that the gospel is central in your life today, tomorrow, for the rest of your life? How will you labor What will you do to see to it that that is a reality of your life? That you are known for those things. In this world, we care so much about what our epitaph might read, what our tombstone might say, that what we might be taken with is that he is not here made all the difference in that person's life. And it was displayed in the way they lived. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we ask that you would make the gospel, make the resurrection, make the death of Jesus, make it precious in our eyes. May we dream about it. May we think on it. May we see the world through those lenses. May we consider how we interact with one another with respect to the gospel itself. Will you use it to continue to transform and renew our minds? Will you cause it and our understanding of it to enhance our worship? Create within us a more robust and faithful allegiance to you because of the reality of your resurrection. Lord, we are weak. Lord, we fail. And I pray that we would learn from those failures. That we wouldn't bank on grace. We wouldn't live lives of licentiousness or lawlessness. May we not be antinomians here, Lord, but may we please consider your truth. Consider our call. Consider what was purchased and what's expected. Give us endurance and perseverance to be light so that others may see and glorify you. In Jesus' name.